Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, November 18th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topshire. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Axios reports that Biden's campaign is considering joining TikTok. The ratification of Sweden's NATO bid is delayed in Turkey's parliament. Ukraine prepares for another winter of Russian strikes on its energy infrastructure. Sudan calls on the UN to end its political mission. Spain's Pedro Sanchez is re-elected as prime minister. A man is convicted for last year's attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. Russia moves to declare the LGBTQ plus public movement extremist. Florida's DeSantis is sued over a ban on a pro-Palestinian student group. The World Health Organization declares loneliness as a, quote, pressing global health threat. And YouTube launches an AI tool that mimics the vocals of nine artists. In our top story, according to a special report, the Biden campaign is considering a TikTok presence. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Fox News, Associated Press, and The Messenger. On Friday, Virginia-based news website Axios, citing two anonymous sources, reported that U.S. President Joe Biden's re-election campaign is considering joining the social media platform TikTok in order to appeal more to young voters. The alleged talks come after the Biden administration banned the app from being used on federal devices in February. The platform, owned by the Chinese company ByteDance, has sparked data and privacy concerns, with officials warning that the app may share user information with the Chinese government, allegations that TikTok has reportedly denied. Other than GOP presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy, the Republicans have largely stayed away from the app over the security concerns, but several high-profile Democrats, including New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Mission Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and California Governor Gavin Newsom are present on the platform. Recent polls have shown Biden to be lacking in support from those under the age of 30, with a survey by Axios finding that nearly 32% of adults over 30 received their political news from TikTok. Meanwhile, a spokesman for the Biden campaign criticized the report on X, writing, This is not a scoop. He added that many ideas are broached during campaign talks, with some coming to fruition, while many others fall through. Thank you, Eric, for the facts, and we'll start this round of narrative spins with a Democratic narrative from Politico. It is the job of politicians to meet the people where they are, and TikTok could potentially be a great tool to reach out to a new demographic of voters and ensure that they are getting their political information straight from the source. While there are risks associated with being on the app, implementing the proper safeguards significantly reduces them. Regardless, Axios's premature scoop should be taken with a grain of salt. Counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. Faced with troubling numbers and recent polling, it would be no surprise if Biden's campaign joined TikTok, a move that would not only be hypocritical in light of the administration's recent ban, but also dangerous. While the details of this report have yet to be verified, it speaks to the wider issue of using the Chinese-owned app on the campaign trail. And from time to time, we get nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 1.2% chance that the U.S. will ban TikTok before 2024. Turkey's Parliamentary Foreign Affairs Committee delayed a vote concerning Sweden's application to NATO on Thursday, with Chairman Fuat Oktay claiming that lawmakers were in need of being fully convinced to approve the matter. This comes as legislators from Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's ruling party submitted a motion for a postponement requesting further clarification on some issues. Oktay told reporters that still unscheduled upcoming session may involve the Swedish ambassador. The bill needs to be approved by a simple majority in the committee before being put to a full parliament vote, 
which could take weeks. Then the final step in the ratification process would be for Erdogan to sign it into law. Sweden applied to NATO in a joint bid with Finland in May 2022, following the outbreak of the Ukraine war, in a move that must be unanimously approved by all pre-existing member states. Though Finland acceded in April, Sweden's protocol has yet to be approved by Hungary and Turkey. Erdogan lifted his objection to Sweden's NATO bid in July after Stockholm pledged deeper cooperation on counterterrorism amid claims that the Nordic country harbors members of groups that threaten Turkish security, particularly the terrorist-designated Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK. Though tensions between Turkey and its Western allies have mounted this week as Erdogan has criticized the backing of Israel's campaign in Gaza against Hamas, the country has sought to secure deals to buy F-16 and Typhoon fighter jets from the U.S. and Germany, respectively. Melissa, thanks for laying out those facts. The first spin is Narrative A. It's coming from Daily Sabah. By initiating the parliamentary process to potentially approve Sweden's NATO bid, Erdogan has simply opened decision-making to the legislative, rather than endorsing a rubber-stamp process as many had hoped. Turkey will continue to deliberate on the matter, taking into consideration whether Sweden has reassured Ankara to an acceptable extent and what relationship Turkey wishes to hold with the West. And the local Sweden brings us Narrative B. Turkey continues to hold out against Sweden's NATO bid in an attempt to apply further pressure on the U.S. to supply the country with F-16 fighter jets a topic that has not yet even made it to America's Senate. A year and a half after its application, Sweden continues to be unnecessarily frustrated by external and unrelated politics. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 25% chance that Sweden will join NATO before 2024. Ukraine braces for another winter of Russian strikes on energy infrastructure. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BNN, the official website of the president of Ukraine, Ukraine Forum, Kyiv Post, Ukraine News, and Ukrainska Pravda. As winter nears and temperatures plummet, Ukraine is preparing itself for the possibility of another winter of Russian strikes on energy infrastructure, a tactic that was heavily deployed by Russia's military 12 months ago. Rolling blackouts became a feature of life in many areas of Ukraine, including Kyiv. On Thursday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told reporters, quote, We are in better condition than last year, but I do not believe that Russia will use fewer weapons. In his nightly address the same day, Zelensky said this effort to be better prepared, including shoring up Ukraine's air defenses, stating that Ukraine's ability to defend its skies was constantly improving, although a lot of work was still required. Quote, Cities like Kharkiv, regions like Donetsk and Zaporizhia need more systems, more security, Zelensky said. Quote, this is the task of all our diplomats of our entire state. On Friday, the U.S. announced it will provide Ukraine with an additional $500 million to shore up its energy infrastructure. Jeffrey Pyatt, the Assistant Secretary of State for Energy, said that funds were mainly aimed at meeting urgent needs, such as replacing transformers. Meanwhile, Natalia Humenyuk, a spokeswoman for Ukraine's Southern Military Command, alleged that Russia had stockpiled more than 800 missiles in Crimea for the purpose of striking Ukraine's energy this winter. She did not provide evidence for her claim, and the number of missiles in Russian arsenals cannot be independently confirmed. Nonetheless, Russia did appear to continue the tactic of striking energy infrastructure. Alexander Prokudin, head of Ukraine's military administration in Kherson, said on Thursday that a Russian strike destroyed a, quote, critical infrastructure facility in the village of Bilozerka. One civilian was killed and four more injured in the attack, Prokudin said. He later confirmed that a total of six civilians had been killed in Russian attacks on the Kherson region in the last day. 
The region, which was bogged down by flooding earlier in the year, has seen a marked intensification of fighting this week. After Ukraine said it gained a foothold on the east bank of the Dnipro River earlier in the week, which not only cuts through Kherson but divides Russia and Ukraine's control of the region, Ukraine's Marines said on Friday that, with the assistance of other Ukrainian units, the Marines, quote, conducted a series of successful operations there. They claimed upwards of 1,200 Russian soldiers were killed since the assault was launched on November 8th. Thank you, Eric. We'll start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from CNBC. Russia's deliberate targeting of energy infrastructure unnecessarily increasing the suffering of civilians amounts to war crimes. This is yet another example of why Russia's aggression in Ukraine must be confronted with Western support. The pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. Attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure are a direct consequence of the failure of the country's leadership to meaningfully engage in peace talks and the false mindset that they can defeat Russia on the battlefield. These attacks will stop once a more sober position is reached. Here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 1% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukrainian conflict before 2024. Sudan asks the UN to end political missions immediately. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters. All Africa, DW, UN News, Arab News, and France 24. Sudan's government has called on the United Nations to end its political mission in the country with immediate effect in a letter penned to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres on Thursday, accusing the mission of ineffectiveness. In the document, Sudan's acting foreign minister, Ali Sadiq, requests the UN to immediately terminate the UN Integrated Transitional Assistance Mission in Sudan. However, the Sudanese government remains committed to constructive cooperation with the Security Council and the UN Secretariat, the letter continues. The UN mission's performance in implementing its objectives was disappointing, the letter claims, accusing the UN of failing to deliver on its mandate to assist the Sudanese transitional government following the Sudanese revolution that deposed longtime leader Omar al-Bashir in 2018. Also on Thursday, the UN announced that UN Chief Guterres commissioned a review of UNITAMS. UN diplomat Ian Martin was tasked with providing the Security Council with options for adapting the mandate to the realities of the conflict that caused a severe humanitarian crisis in Sudan. Meanwhile, the UN raised concerns that the conflict was spreading to new regions of Sudan and warned of an increasing humanitarian calamity. On April 15th, fighting broke out between the Sudanese armed forces under the command of Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Burnham and the Rapid Support Forces, led by Mohamed Hamda Dagalo. In recent weeks, the RSF made military progress in Darfur, taking control of the Sudanese army bases in Niala, capital of the South Darfur state, and other key areas. According to estimates by the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, at least 9,000 people have been killed since the outbreak of the conflict, which is largely thought to be a low estimate. Thank you, Melissa, for those facts. The first spin is an establishment critical narrative. It comes from Al-Shark al-Assad. The request for this UN mission to leave Sudan once again highlights the growing rift between the Sudanese government and the world body as violence escalates. Also in light of this development, an inclusive African-led approach based on the African Union's efforts to implement a comprehensive roadmap for peace needs to be established. African-led peace initiatives, with their unique understanding of the complexity of the crisis, play a critical role in supporting a Sudanese-owned process to restore peace and promote a democratic transition in Sudan. The pro-establishment narrative comes from ISS Africa. 
The demand of the Sudanese interim government ties in with Khartoum's recent declaration of the UN Special Envoy as persona non grata. Meanwhile, peace negotiations have so far failed to achieve a lasting ceasefire, and African stakeholders, such as the African Union, lack resources and capacities with little leverage to exert pressure on the conflict parties. To avoid any further escalation, UNITAM's mandate should therefore be reviewed and extended until next year, while African actors should push for greater influence within UNITAM's. News coming from Spain as Pedro Sanchez has been re-elected as prime minister. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Politico, New York Times, Al Jazeera, Sky News and Breitbart. Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez is set to form a new minority government with the broad left-wing Sumar Alliance after he secured 179 votes in the 350-seat parliament on Thursday following a controversial amnesty deal with Catalan separatists. While he was backed by every left-wing and separatist group in Spain's hyper-fractured parliament, 171 lawmakers belonging to the center-right Popular Party, the nationalist Fox, and the conservative Navarrese People's Union voted against Sanchez. This concludes a months-long stalemate that came in the aftermath of an inconclusive election in July, as neither the largest popular party nor Sanchez's second-placed socialist party secured enough support to establish a government. However, the deal to pardon more than 300 people linked to crimes concerning Catalan independence since 2012 has reportedly outraged most Spaniards, with a recent poll indicating that more than two-thirds of the electorate oppose the amnesty bill. While some 400 people protested outside Parliament after the vote was concluded, popular party leader Alberto Núñez Feijú called for a mass protest across the country on Saturday. On November 12th, about 3 million Spaniards reportedly took to the streets to protest against the amnesty project over claims that Sanchez struck a deal with violent separatists to try to stay in power illegitimately. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We'll start with a left narrative from Al País. Sanchez's victory further illustrates why the socialist leader has excelled in politics, garnering board cross-party support and breaking records, though he was thought to be done. The premier pragmatically adapts to the times, finding a way to navigate out of every complex situation, even the most challenging ones, such as reaching a deal with Catalonia's Junts. The right narrative comes from European conservative. It's utterly outrageous that Sanchez has sided with Catalan coup plotters, as well as with the political arm of ETA, to stay in office after losing the general elections. He's a liar who would, without hesitation, accept the devil's help to sustain his grip on power, as nothing else matters to him. If left unchecked, Sanchez will destroy the rule of law and create a Bolivarian-style left-wing dictatorship. And the nerds at Metaculus predict there's a 20% chance that Spain will announce a snap general election before March 2024. David DePop is found guilty in the Paul Pelosi hammer attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, the New York Post, the National Review, BBC News, Courthouse News Services, and the Washington Examiner. San Francisco jurors convicted 43-year-old David DePop of federal crimes for breaking into the home of then-Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and attacking her husband Paul with a hammer in October of 2022. Their verdict came after deliberating for roughly eight hours on Thursday. After a week-long trial, he received a guilty verdict for the charge of attempted kidnapping of a federal official and assault on close relatives of a federal official in retaliation for the performance of their duties. DePop offered an apology to Pelosi on Tuesday, adding that he was never his target. 
Attorneys for DePop had argued that he never intended to kidnap anyone and that his actions aimed at reaching his true target, University of Michigan professor Gail Rubin, whose work focuses on feminist theory and queer studies. The Canadian citizen who has lived in the U.S. for two decades now faces up to 50 years in prison, 20 20 years for the attempted abduction charge and another 30 years for assaulting Paul Pelosi, which resulted in a fractured skull and injuries to his arm and hand. While a sentencing date hasn't been set yet, a status conference is scheduled for December 13th in U.S. District Judge Jacqueline Scott Corley's courtroom. Meanwhile, he still faces several state charges related to the incident, including attempted murder, which carries the possibility of life imprisonment, as well as assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, residential burglary, false imprisonment, and threats to a public official and their family. The next hearing in the state case is scheduled for November 29th, where a judge is expected to set a trial date. Melissa, thanks for laying out those facts. We have a couple of spins, beginning with a Democratic narrative. It's coming from MSNBC. This attack was a predictable and tragic product of the dangerous rhetoric and toxic conspiracy theories spewing from the far right. Their message of so-called survivalism makes it sound as though defeating those on the other side of the political spectrum is a life-or-death matter. The right-lurching GOP must be held accountable for its extremism and the violence it inspires. And the Republican narrative comes from the San Francisco Standard. It's quite amazing to watch liberal San Francisco switch to tough-on-crime stance when one of their own gets attacked. After endless news coverage of this incident calling to pop an unhinged far-right attacker, 55% of prospective jurors surveyed ahead of the trial said they already believed he was guilty. While DePop should be held accountable for his inexcusable actions, it's no surprise he didn't receive the prosecutorial leniency so often promoted by these progressives. The nerds from Metaculus have a narrative. They say there's a 30% chance that the next assassination of a sitting U.S. president will occur after January 1st of the year 2100. Russia asks the Supreme Court to designate the LGBTQ plus movement extremist. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, NBC, Al Jazeera, and El País. Russia's Ministry of Justice asked the Supreme Court on Friday to outlaw what it characterized as the international LGBT public movement as extremist. The ministry argued that it has identified signs and manifestations of extremist nature in Russia, including incitement of social and religious discord. While the specific consequences of such a ruling weren't made clear, this is the latest LGBTQ plus restriction initiated by President Vladimir Putin, who has made, quote, traditional family values a key part of his rule. In 2013, the Kremlin adopted the, quote, gay propaganda law, banning any non-critical public depiction of, quote, non-traditional sexual relations among minors, and in 2020, outlawed gay marriage. Moscow's restrictions on left-leaning movements has intensified since it invaded Ukraine, including the extremist label to open up certain groups to criminal prosecution. In July, it outlawed gender reassignment with lawmaker Peter Tolstoy at the time, arguing the law was about countering alleged Western influence. That law specifically banned gender transitioning procedures and, quote, medical interventions aimed at changing the sex of a person. It also added gender change as a reason to annul a marriage and added those, quote, who had changed gender to a list of people prohibited from fostering or adopting children. During a speech formalizing the annexation of four Ukrainian regions in September 2022, 
Putin asked, quote, do we really want to have here in our country, in Russia, quote, parent number one, number two, and number three instead of mom and dad? In 2022, Russia passed a law for a total ban on what it characterized as LGBTQ plus propaganda in media, film, and other venues. We'll start this round of narrative spins with an anti-Russia narrative from the Pink News. Russia, under Vladimir Putin, has become a hellscape for LGBTQ plus citizens, which is why there has been a mass exodus of individuals being persecuted. Not only has he banned gender-affirming care and trans people from adopting kids, but he's also put students at risk for simply filming themselves dressed in so-called untraditional ways. This latest development is an authoritarian nightmare for the entire globe. The pro-Russian narrative comes from Mirage News. From its laws protecting children and families, from gender surgeries to its war in Ukraine, Russia is simply fighting to stop the encroachment of the West's insidious cultural exportation. Moscow isn't anti-progress, but rather understands the importance of retaining one's national culture, language, and family-centered religious beliefs. The West doesn't care about culture. It seeks to undermine and overhaul the traditions of every country that hasn't yet bowed down to its elitist demands. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus. With a 50% chance that Russia will have no laws banning LGBT propaganda by July 2051. In Florida, a pro-Palestinian student group is suing Ron DeSantis. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Tallahassee Democrat, Reuters, Forbes, The Messenger, and Politico. The University of Florida's Students for Justice in Palestine, or SJP, group is suing the state university system, claiming Governor Ron DeSantis's call for the group's deactivation to be in violation of its First Amendment rights to freedom of speech and association. The ACLU on Thursday filed the suit in federal court on behalf of the group, which has received more attention since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war. The suit is in response to an order last month from State University System Chancellor Ray Rodriguez ordering the disbanding of SJP chapters over the National SJP Group's alleged support for Hamas, pointing to comments characterizing Hamas as the resistance. Rodriguez, DeSantis, and the University System's Board of Governors are listed as defendants in the suit. In a statement, the University of Florida's SJP chapter said it has every right to engage in human rights advocacy, and it is filing suit to ensure the government doesn't overstep its bounds in silencing this group. The university's SJP chapter also denied any financial or other type of relationship with the national SJP. Those were the facts, and the first spin is a left narrative coming from the New Republic. DeSantis's xenophobic and authoritarian tendencies are on display when campaigning for the Republican presidential nomination and ruling over his state. In this instance, he's conflating all supporters of the Palestinians with terrorism, a gross act of Islamophobia. This lawsuit will show him that every American, regardless of race or religion, has a constitutional right to assembly and neither governments nor college administrators can silence speech it doesn't like. Here's the right narrative from Fox News. This isn't about free speech or the left's bad faith argument about cancel culture. It's about protecting the U.S. If a student organization is affiliated with a group like Hamas, that's the equivalent of giving material support to a terrorist organization, and that organization has no place on an American college campus. This is a national security issue, and Florida has made the right call. The nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community says there's a 47% chance that Taliban-controlled Afghanistan will be used as a base for anti-NATO terrorism by 2026. 
The World Health Organization declares loneliness a, quote, pressing health threat. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, the World Health Organization, The Telegraph, NDTV.com, Daily Mail, and CNN. The World Health Organization, or WHO, has declared loneliness to be a pressing global health threat and launched an international commission to address the problem. The Commission on Social Connection is co-chaired by U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy and African Union Youth Envoy Chido Pemba and comprises 11 advocates and government ministers. For three years, the Commission will, quote, help to establish social connection as a global health priority and shape global policy by examining high-risk areas of social isolation. According to its report titled, quote, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation, the WHO states that loneliness is associated with an increased risk of heart disease, dementia, depression, and premature death. In May, Dr. Murthy released an advisory warning that the U.S. is facing an epidemic of loneliness, claiming it's as lethal to physical health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Last month, a 142-country survey found that nearly one in four adults feel very or fairly lonely. Previous studies have found that over half of children and adolescents feel lonely at least some of the time. Those were the facts. Thanks, Eric. And we'll start this round of spins with Narrative A from Unheard. While the health risks of loneliness are real, loneliness isn't a health epidemic or quite the crisis it's cracked up to be. Surveys say young people are the loneliest, which has always been the case and doesn't necessarily mean people are getting lonelier. There's insufficient evidence to show a steady trend in loneliness around the world. More solid sociological evidence is needed. Narrative B comes from the World Health Organization. Though we live in the most digitally connected age in the history of civilization, most adults experience loneliness daily due to diminishing real-life social connections. Social isolation and loneliness are important yet neglected determinants of health. Since being socially disconnected is bad for our physical, emotional, and financial health, reversing course needs a strong global effort, and this initiative is an important first step. And Metaculus has another prediction for us, saying there's a 35% chance that in 2050, at least half of college students in the U.S. will be studying exclusively remotely or online. In our final story today, YouTube launches an AI tool that mimics top artists' vocals. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Rolling Stone, Forbes, CNBC, CoinGeek, Verge, and CNN. YouTube has launched a new tool that will allow select users to make music with the AI-generated vocals of nine famous artists, including Demi Lovato, Charlie XCX, John Legend, and Troy Sivan. Called DreamTrack, the experimental AI tool will permit a small group of select U.S. creators to generate song snippets for up to 30 seconds for use in the YouTube's short-form video section. In a blog post on Thursday, YouTube said that the technology could be used to create deeper connections between artists and creators and shared samples of what AI-generated music experiments would sound like. YouTube has already launched an AI music incubator in partnership with music giant Universal Music Group, reportedly in order to inspire creativity while protecting artists' copyrights. In September, the video-sharing platform announced a slew of AI-powered tools, including AI-generated photo and video backgrounds called DreamScreen. YouTube's foray into AI has repeatedly raised the alarm over potential intellectual property rights issues and the spread of misinformation via deepfake images. Melissa, thanks for the facts. The first spin's Narrative A coming from Platformer. YouTube's approach to responsible AI innovation is greenlighting the widespread posting of, quote, synthetic media. 
While major label musicians' requests for video takedown might be being taken seriously by the platform, all that its statement says about deepfakes is that the company will, quote, consider a variety of factors when evaluating such reports. YouTube needs to make much more convincing reassurances. And here's Narrative B from Forbes. Google DeepMind, the UK-based AI research lab that has launched YouTube's DreamTrack, has already reassured those concerned about deepfakes and copyright that any synthetic audio it publishes will be watermarked. This watermarking will be inaudible to the human ear and doesn't compromise the listening experience, but allows for detection even after manipulation. This fact ought to lay to rest any fears among skeptics. Our final nerd narrative of today's podcast, coming from Metaculus, says there's a 67% chance that at least 25% of year-end Billboard Hot 100 songs will be primarily composed by AI by the year 2050. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, November 18th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.